This is the Chronicles Podcast, a production of Chronicles Magazine, the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in America. Welcome, everybody. For the second time, this is Chronicles Magazine Podcast, and I'm, of course, CJ Ingle, the host of Chronicles Magazine Podcast, and most of you know Charles Hayward. I think he's our first recurring guest, besides Paul Gottfried, who's not really a guest, um, <laughs> but it's always fun to talk to Charles um, at The Worthy House on Twitter, I think. Is that right? That is correct. Um, most of you know him. He is someone who is fun and engaging and he advocates for people to get energetic about um, politics and not just um, have this weird, like, you know, ivory tower approach to political conversation or something as if as if as if the left is going to allow us to have a sit down discussion with them about our rights and our way of life. So, uh, Charles, welcome back. I am very pleased to be back. And this is uh, episode number two with me, I suppose. So I'm very- it is. It is. So, uh, yeah, round two. The title is Accelerationism. And radicalizing the right. I told you right before we went on that um, the right is not allowed to take up its function in politics, which is to confront the left. And that's that's the role that the right needs to play is it needs to confront the left uh, with power. That means that means wielding power. And well, it, it, its function is to defeat the left. And along the way, the left, left. It must be confronted. Yes, that's true. Um, and conservatives are bad at that. They hate power. Um, they want to deny anyone to their right the um, ability to wield power. That's kind of the function of the conservatives in our time is to absorb the potential um, you know, uh, power that the right could have to actually do what it takes to defeat the enemies of civilization, which are, of course, not interested in conversation. They're interested in wielding power. So I guess that's a good place to start. Um, we can sit here and complain about conservatives all day, but I guess we should talk about is the right starting to wake up and learn their lesson a little bit? Yes, I, I think the answer is fairly clearly yes. One of the problems, of course, is that it, it's always, and this is this is an obvious problem, it's, it's very difficult to tell what the exactly is going on inside of any large group. And, and that's particularly true nowadays with the internet because you, not because you can't get more information, you can get more information, but because the the problem of self-selection of the media you consume is even worse than it used to be. That has certain, uh, certainly a great deal of benefits for people on the right, but it's very easy to convince yourself uh, when you get the dopamine hits on Twitter or what have you that we're winning. And of course, winning on Twitter isn't winning anything. On the other hand, there's plenty of actual hard evidence that things are going our way in terms of waking up and you know, radicalizing, which may or may not be the exact term I would choose, but we have things, and I'm very much on team happening, as they say. Okay, yeah, yeah. So um, what word would you use? Is radicalizing just too leftward oriented well, for you? Uh, the, it's not a terrible word because it's, it's necessary in the context, but yes, it, it carries a vague left flavor Sure. And certainly a well-run society is not a radical society, nor is its polity or politics radical. Radicalism is necessary for necessary change. I mean, even Edmund Burke, you know, the sainted Edmund Burke, whom conservatives for decades have worshipped, you know, even he said that radicalism was necessary when things were too far gone. Mm-hmm. You know, 
he has this reputation as an incrementalist, which is only only partially true. But yeah, I, I off the cuff, I can't think of a better word than yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Realizing if you, if you gave, gave me a minute or two to to ponder with a glass of port by the by my volumes of Roger Scruton, maybe I could come up with uh, with something. But... No, what I what I mean what I mean by it is um, ripping people away from the center. You know, there's just like this passivity. You know, the people are just kind of neutered. You know, there's no um, involvement in in the like the heightened excitement of what politics needs to be in terms of um, you know uh, acquiring power. Um, and and just reinterpreting you know the system in a way that's just not so drab and boring. Sure, um, I mean in a properly run society, though, ninety percent of the people are apolitical. I mean, of course. It, it, the goal is not to make everyone permanently political. The goal is to strip the left of all power. So I, I certainly agree with that. That we know to do that, we need to involve more people in politics. Unfortunately, uh, it, just in the abstract, it's not really a key goal. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, um, you've been engaging lately with people like uh, people may or may not know Neil Shenvey. Um, but I, he's funny cause he kind of sits there on, um, like sort of the, the Christian conservative, you know, and he's not as bad as some others. Um, he's actually willing to somewhat engage. Um, and he's, act it, it's funny to see him trying to grapple with this idea of the alt right, the alternative right, the dissident right, the right that is not comfortable any longer with playing regime games and being within the comfort zone of regime-approved um, spectrums. Mm -hmm. So you know, but he'll still participate. There's a, a funny little um, you know engagement that you had with him. He would characterize, you know, what is his definition of the alt right? His the it was the weirdest definition. His definition included. Um, you know, a view of the nation that was ethno-nationalist. Like that was part of his definition of what it meant to be right. Um, what do you think is going on there? What is he trying to do? Is he just dealing with the discomfort of a right that's becoming awakened? Well, the, the term he used was far right. And it was okay. in the context of saying basically, basically, mamas don't let your boys grow up to be far right. I mean, he didn't use that phrase, but that, he, he yeah. essentially in that, in that context, he had something else too. And, and I was basically, I was like, well, can you define the far right? And he came back with a list of three things. Uh, one was that, and uh, frankly, I can't remember what the other two were. But as I pointed out to him, these are not, this is not a definition of far right. These are stances on issues. And right. it, he didn't, he of course did not answer my other questions, which are, can you name a single person of prominence, public prominence or power who is far right in your de non-definition? And you know, I also asked him, am I far right? <laughs> and it, to which he demurred that he didn't know anything about me, which of course is false. <laughs> but it's uh, in any case, he, why people like this do this, I think you've correctly identified, which is that I mean, this is this is the... I wouldn't say it's the oldest phenomenon in the book because there's lots of other phenomena that are that are older. But the idea that uh, I, as a conservative or man of the right, particularly a Christian man of the right, need to make sure that I'm not tainted by the other people who are to the right of me. And this is this goes back to the the brouhaha last fall with, with no enemies on the right and, and some of the other things, which is where I first interacted with Shenby on, on right. that right, uh, on that question. But he hasn't learned anything. I mean, what's that? Um, it's it an aphorism. People who have learned nothing and have and forgotten nothing. Who said that? I can't <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. That's Neil. He, uh, he's learned nothing and forgotten nothing. But he yeah. to begin with. So the forgetting is less of a problem.
Yeah. So you're on team happening, you know, so that means you think that uh, the energy is here. The energy is where it needs to be. Uh, not yet, but it's building up to that. You know, um, we're in a good place. We're on the path that needs to be taken is sort of your view. Um, and you've talked a lot about your optimism with Elon changing the conversation and shifting the Overton window. Can you talk a little bit about what role that he's already played and where you see him going. I think you said on Twitter the other day, maybe it was yesterday, that he's going to eventually just come out and say he's on the right. I, I, well, I, I'm about to publish a, a, I write book reviews, of course, which are really just my own thoughts masquerading as book reviews. I'm about to publish my piece on Elon Musk based upon the recent Walter Isaacson biography. So this is this has been on my mind uh, a lot. And I think a lot of people on the right are, they see this, my focus on Musk as a potential future man of destiny as either cope or silly or Haywood's high or you know, some set of things like that. But I, I think that's that's not the case at all. Is, but my the syllogism is very simple. You, you have Musk and he's the most richest man in the world and extremely powerful and not just in terms of monetary, but in his ability to launch rockets and, and so on to control these various choke points of power within the world. He has very defined goals, and his number one goal is to get to Mars, leaving aside totally whether that makes any sense. I mean, that's not, that's not really the relevant question. I mean, and then it's obvious to everybody, and it's probably obvious to Musk, though he probably hasn't either admitted it in public, he definitely hasn't been in public, he may not have admitted it to himself, that the regime will never let him achieve his life goals, and which he has maybe 20 years left to do, uh, Period. That is just, they will not allow him to do it because it, it, Musk is, yeah, is for a variety of reasons, but they don't want him to have more power. They're afraid of his turning to the right. And he's his continued success demonstrates, for example, that the only things of worth that have ever been accomplished in history are done by teams of white men. And because if you look at like the pictures in Isaacson's book, it, basically everybody's a white man. Yeah, there's a few. There's a smattering of other people, and there's you know Glenn, Gwen, Gwen Shotwell, who uh, is in charge of the kind of softer aspects of SpaceX, is is obviously a woman. But for the most part, Musk gives the lie to everything that the regime stands for. This mm -hmm. can't be tolerated, and so therefore they'll attempt to destroy Musk, which you've already seen, where they stole fifty-five billion from him the other day, which is you know probably more than pocket change even for someone like Musk. He's, he's obviously, because he's very linear, realized or is in the process of realizing that it's inevitable that he has to go or the regime has to go. Mm -hmm. And if you're a guy like Musk, your choice is going to be the latter. So it's only a question of what triggers some actual action and what those actions will be. So he's not someone who's um, you know going to articulate a right-wing philosophy, but he's someone that... Um, basically has his own objectives he's gonna need to plow through the, regi the regime in order to attain those objectives and along the way we can come along behind him and, and benefit from the collapse of not the, just the collapse but just the um the the delegitimization of the of the regime right so you can think of musk as kind of an icebreaker right not an mm -hmm. icebreaker like a party icebreaker but like mm -hmm. a ship icebreaker and yeah. you, you have to remember that like spending all your time carping that Elon Musk doesn't think A, B, and C just like I do, or that my you know Hans Hermann Hoppe said he should think or something is stupid. I mean, that's like anything Napoleon needed to be Edmund Burke in order to be accomplish 
the restoration of the greatness of France. I mean, Napoleon was not the kind of person that conservatives generally like. That is, he purported to be continuing the ideals of the revolution and so on, though he obviously mm -hmm. wasn't. But the fact is that Musk is a very imperfect vessel in terms of like if you are constructing the ideal, <laughs> the ideal uh, sure. uh, right-wing man of destiny. But you go to war with the leaders you have. Mm -hmm. or whether metaphorical or, or actual. And so that's what it is. I mean, I'm not saying this is what what I'm constructing as the ideal scenario. I'm saying this is what the scenario is and is going to be. Mm -hmm. To what extent do you think um, like conservatives, maybe younger conservatives are starting to realize that they can't just play nice anymore? And I and I know we've been talking about that for, for decades already, you know, <laughs> that, that we need to stop playing nice. Um, but we really haven't done it. So what, what does that look like in the future? Is it like the, um, the Greg Abbott model with just telling the feds to, you know, go jump off a dot? I mean, is that, is that going to be the, the types of things that happen in the coming years? It, it, it's hard to say. I mean, coming years is probably a, uh, over generous assessment of how long it will take to, for team happening to be emerge fully victorious. So I, I think like your average young conservative is not well advised to do much of anything because obviously a cornered rat such as the regime is, is extremely dangerous. And the regime, yeah. while fragile, still is extremely powerful. So you don't want to be the guy who, you know, gets a 20 year sentence and actually has to serve like two of it, which is, you know, probably what would happen. But who wants a two year jail sentence anyway, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, the, young people shouldn't do, do anything in the sense of creating the happenings. That's up to people like Abbott. So, but the Abbott is, that's a perfect example of something that is an actual happening. It completely, it's kind of died down because the federal government took it in the teeth and sat down and they may or may not be plotting their next move, but a completely unprecedented for well over a hundred years set of, of happenings, which an Abbott is continuing to pour salt in the wound and so on. Now, is it a happening in the sense of like some other happenings might be as big? No. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll believe, for example, a happening would be Elon Musk raising a 20,000 man private security force. <laughs> right, right. That would be fun, uh, especially because most most or all of his businesses are in Texas. So it could be you know, quasi uh, military in, uh, in, yeah. in focus. So that would be a real happening. I, I fully support that as well. Uh, not that Musk has said anything of the sort, but I'm certain it's, it's occurred to him. Uh, but I think that young people are best off not pushing the happenings, but letting the happenings happen by themselves. It's it's hard to um, I mean, people don't really like the last 10 years have gone really fast. I mean, the, the <laughs> amount of the, the amount of delegitimization that's happened in politics is actually surreal. I mean, we, we talk about that that's sort of a necessary first step, but you can see it all around you. I mean, I don't know exactly the area you live in, but literally everyone around me does not care about the federal government. They're not interested in preserving it, protecting it or fighting for sure. it. They don't want to go. You know, they don't want to. Um, give up their 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 blood and treasure for the regime, not just the Biden um, regime, but just the entire apparatus. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, do you see have things been that swift in your opinion too? Yeah, I, it's certainly the the idea that the it, it, I, I've said this repeatedly, but the, not to repeat myself, but the if you describe to us, you and me personally, like just a couple of years ago. What today would look like, we would have laughed and said that's kind of clownish and, and stupid, uh, unrealistic. So, I mean, and this is obviously just continuing, going faster and faster and faster. Mm -hmm. the, the the problem is, of course, that it's not 
it's not officially a set of happenings until something truly dramatic happens, like right. economic collapse or you know, a real pandemic or something that really kind of tips over all the kind of fragile balances and allows a, a more direct reshaking of the political order. But it, certainly in terms of what you mentioned, which is the psychological and political delegitimization of the regime, it, it, it's a, it's extreme. And what, yeah. what that means is not clear. But for example, I think one test of that would be, I think if the government tried to do uh, conscription, tried to enact conscription, uh, it, it, that would collapse the regime essentially overnight. There's no one's going to participate in that, mm -hmm. except for maybe the illegal illegal immigrants, illegal aliens that they're trying to recruit uh, into the military. But even then, I don't think so. Uh, that is like, I don't think illegal aliens are going to be stick around to be drafted either. <laughs> no one wants to be drafted to fight for the regime. Yeah. If you're an illegal alien, why would you... Uh, why would you take that risk when you figure that you stick around a few more years, you would get you getting handouts and then you get, get citizenship, or at least that's what you hope for. So you can imagine scenarios where the regime becomes even more rapidly delegitimized, but we're still on that arc. Do you think delegitimization is happening like in Eastern Europe with uh, the Ukraine thing? I mean, obviously um, like even, even our you know people that we have good relationships with that are in NATO, like Hungary, I mean, everyone's a little bit ticked off with, you know, American hegemony and hubris over there. I mean, Germany itself was literally, we attacked their pipeline and they just have this like, you know, tail between the legs mentality that, that they've had since the end of World War II. But do you think anything in the foreign policy space is going to contribute to the delegitimization? Oh, certainly. I mean, the, the loss of the Ukraine war is uh, you know, the Russians winning, which is obviously happening, is uh, is going to contribute to that. I mean, the regime does have significant propaganda powers to cover that up. And within Europe, the countries that are satrapies of the regime, notably Germany, are have much greater ability to control the people than the American regime does in America. So I think it, what the exact impact is unclear. I mean, Hungary, of course, is a special case. As you probably know, I'm half Hungarian. So I, I mean, I pay a fair bit of attention to mm -hmm. Hungarian matters. But Hungary is a special case, both because its government is, its wildly popular government is is right wing uh, and not interested in the Ukraine war and uh, under the table is interested in the dismemberment of Ukraine in order to get back land stolen after World War One. Subcarpathian Ruthenia. So, where there's still a bunch of Hungarian, I don't know if, if assuming you watched the uh, the Tucker Putin uh, interview. Yeah, of course. I mean, so, Putin even mentioned that Hungarians in Ukraine, a not so subtle nod to Viktor Orban's not so hidden desire to, to get back <laughs> that area. Uh, but uh, so, I think that the prediction of specifics about, for example, what the German government will do is, is very difficult. But right. the arc, arc is clear, like I say. Well, it's funny because um, my wife has family in Germany and um, not not just family, her entire, her mom's entire family, my her my mother-in-law came over um, from Germany and learned English, you know, oh, so wow. like I have a perspective of rural Germans over there and um, they seem to be kind of um, betraying the, the mindset that was foisted on them, you know, in post-war Germany. Um, the F the AFD and parties like that, you're not allowed to admit that you're interested in it, but just hearing from the, you know, the rural side of the Germans, they're all in on their um, anti post-war America, uh, you know, That's narrative. Great. So That's there great. is, there is the tension. I mean, Germany is probably one of the worst shape Western uh, European countries, but there is this growing tension between, you know, the, the heritage 
Germans and the German regime, same as here and same as in Western Europe in general. So you see that everywhere. It's not just an American phenomenon, although America is probably in the best spot. Would you say America is in, in Western Europe? America is in the best place in terms of its um, you know, potential to, to Absolutely. overthrow. I'm, I'm very optimistic about the future of America or the lands mm -hmm. that exist in the future where America is now, uh, though there'll be plenty of, of turmoil along along the way. Uh, I'm not optimistic at all about, about Europe. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, on, on many levels, they've admitted far too many migrants. They're not going to be able to get rid of them. They're not having any of their own children. Hungary is a bit of an exception, like I say, but Hungary is a tiny country, right? I mean, Hungary mm -hmm. basically is at the mercy of its bigger neighbors, either Russia, in it, which who is indifferent to Hungary, I mean, indifferent to somewhat friendly, and or Western Europe, which is uh, which is the enemy of Hungary, uh, and so the I would assume that Europe is doomed, uh, or I do assume that Europe is completely doomed in mm -hmm. the sense that uh, there's and also of course literally hundreds of millions of migrants are within walking distance of Europe. And so unless they're they're willing to start taking the actions that are necessary to both remove every single alien in Europe, not allow any more uh, at the point of a gun, and increase the birth rate to four women for children, for four <coughs> per women, mm -hmm. Europeans are over. It's too bad, but, you know, now Americans are not over. Americans have a bright future if they can just do a few. Well, I mean... We, I mean, we've got like what twenty-five million illegal immigrants that have flooded our, that have flooded you know America. I mean, what every day this gets worse. It it requires a more um, nasty regime, like res political response. Sure. I mean, do you think why are we not as far along the path as they are? In well, as a, as a percentage, it's lower. The negative aspects of like we're admitting, admitting lots of very. Uh, negative migrants recently, Haitians, South Americans, and so on. For you know, there's and you know, people from from you know, farther flung places. Those people are extremely negative for the society for our society. That's a relatively recent phenomenon, relatively small. Mm -hmm. Is Central and South Central Americans and Mexicans are a greater percentage of that. who are simply not as alien to the culture as as the ones the Europeans have admitted. Um, you can imagine some amount of, of assimilation there. And it's also, it'd be very easy to stop the flow. In mm -hmm. Europe, it's not easy to stop the flow because mm -hmm. the, the, all these people are, are, like I say, either within walking or, or boat distance. And getting rid of them in America is relatively straightforward. If you just cut off all benefits, most of those people will simply leave. And the ones mm -hmm. that aren't can be you know, shipped out just by force at the point of a gun. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, that, it, it, it doesn't require nearly the level of nastiness that the Europeans would be required to engage in. What do you think about what's going on down, like in, in terms of um, radicalizing the right? What do you think about what's going on down in El Salvador? Well, I, I'm no expert in it, but it's certainly it, it's very promising and interesting. Uh, I, I just find it fascinating on many levels because I read an interesting article about Bukele, if that's how you pronounce it, that mm -hmm. uh, that you know, his family background and his political background is actually originally left wing. The FMLN, which is the left-wing uh, uh, Salvadoran party, and then you know, he formed his own party, which he literally named New Ideas. So that's funny. Anyway, uh, but uh, of course, as many have pointed out, the the main benefit to America of this is not that Bukele is going to do anything for us. I think he's mm -hmm. in America now, talking uh, at CPAC or something. The it's that he demonstrates to everybody, as long as they have any awareness of it at all, that achieving a 
stable, flourishing society is actually quite easy. Right. Even in a place that has a reputation as kind of a crappy place like El Salvador, you know, mm-hmm. it is not ethnically homogenous, has all sorts of problems, doesn't have a lot of wealth. It's basically an overnight thing. You take, you follow A, B, and C, and pretty soon people are are doing great. And you could follow A, B, and C here as well, very easily. It, it's, yeah. it's trivially easy. I mean, you'd have to do put a lot of people in jail. And Bukele does have the problem that you can't let those people out of jail. So I don't know what his plan is for that. <laughs> right. because, you know, those people have to stay in jail forever or you know, leave in a pine box. And I don't know if he has a plan for, for either of those. Um, so, but his, his main benefit from, I think, an American right perspective, and again, this is not original to me, is he, he demonstrates how easy it is to reimagine a society and make it hugely better overnight. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it is funny. I mean, we, he's, at, he's actually at CPAC. That couldn't have been conceived four years ago. <laughs> no, I mean, it's hilarious. And, and yeah, and he's just, I, and he does such a good job at not just demonstrating what is possible, but how to act. That yeah. instead, of, instead of acting deferential or he, he just like tells anybody who's any, most of his media interlocutors are obviously hostile. And he's extremely good. And most of them, of course, are much less intelligent than him. And so he's very good at putting these people in their place and refusing to grant them any legitimacy whatsoever. I mean, they're just yeah. they're just his enemies. Yeah. You know, that's it. And they should be treated as his enemies, just like we should treat the regime media as our enemies. Exactly. Yeah. So let's uh let's use that to shift away to this question. Um, what's your opinion of you know the woke is being put away? I think it's ludicrously silly and wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's just obviously false. I mean, people, the, the guy who came up with this originally, uh, at least on Twitter, was Nima Parvini. And right. he said, well, and, and he keeps changing his definition of what that means. Now, <laughs> apparently, it means something like it's not really going to be put away, but they're going to talk about putting it away. I mean, that's not well, being put away. And, as, as, and mm-hmm. I was making fun of him on Twitter. He's probably going to block me one of these days. Uh, well, let, let me let me just say this too, real quick. Um, he's a friend of the show. He's been on. Oh, I like. Um, we're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're all, we're off. We're off. This is this is completely internal baseball. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think it's worth talking about because um, it's it's sort of like this. It's a little bit too of a too much of a cope. Like things are going to be okay naturally and organically, right? Is that what you would yeah, say? Yeah. No, well. Yes, it depends on what the, the today's definition is. But <laughs> okay. you know, my point was like this recent Google, like yesterday, recent Google Gemini uh, so-called artificial intelligence image generation, which was basically programmed in to basically spew anti-white hatred, was you know, it, they turn, turned it off. And he says, well, they apologize. They didn't apologize at all. They just turned it off because people were ridiculing them because their anti-white hatred was too obvious. They're just going to make it less obvious and and re-release the thing. And then they didn't apologize or say, we're going to make it different. Or you know, it, it, the woke isn't going to be put away because the left is incapable of any dialing back of its actions. Mm-hmm. Tactically, the, it, it would make sense to say, well, we should consolidate our, our gains. But the, the left is always addicted to the permanent revolution. That's just it means yeah. it's very inevitable. Yeah, the danger of saying um, that it'll be put away is the same as, as my you know phrase from Spengler that optimism is cowardice. Like you actually have to engage. You actually have to confront things, you know, like there's just this mentality in American conservatism that our grandparents had it better off than their parents. And, you know, we have it better off than ours. And it's just this 
progression and America can kind of be exempt from the historical dynamics. Yeah. Um, so the point is that, no, you actually have to use, you actually have to exercise will. You actually have to exercise power in order to get your way. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and if the woke, let's say the woke were put away, all we would get is the world of like 2015. What we need politically is the world of 1880 or 1680. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, not exactly, not nostalgically, but the, the, the elements, the core beliefs you need to be rolled back to to that uh, era, not to 2015. That's just dumb. Yeah, exactly. So, so that's I mean, that's part of like the radicalization too. Is is the realization that um, it's not part of radicalization, so to speak, is is not just that we have to change our mentality, but we have to do something about it. I think that's that's the part that gets a little tricky because people aren't sure what to do, and there's not a lot you can do as an individual. But I do think that um, the pressure needs to be put on political actors as agents of political change. I mean, that's that's the point of being in politics is to be an agent of something, some positive vision of things. Um, And conservatives have been terrible at having a positive vision. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think the the creation of the positive vision and by positive, I don't mean in the Buckleyite sense, I mean, in the. In the uh, the Gottfried sense, that, you know what we're really going to going to do about it, and I think creating that is extremely important. But at the end of the day, what what causes regime changes is people taking direct action, usually in the streets. And so this, you can imagine a point coming. For example, let's say that you you live down in Texas, and Abbott is in an open confrontation with the federal government, and people get to decide whether they want to go out and join what amounts to you know. A demonstration or a protest or a defense of the Texas National Guard headquarters or what have you, or not. At the end of the day, that's what's going to overthrow the regime, just like the the communist regimes in in Eastern Europe in 1989 were overthrown by not by the dissidents who had spent all their time talking about Samizdat and hanging out with their Western <laughs> friends, but by random people who were just tired of yeah. it and decided to go take the risk to to be in the streets. I mean that that's ultimately what what will likely happen here. But until that opportunity arises, people can't really it, it, the one individual running around in the streets is just a crazy person. <laughs> so do you see? A secession might be too strong of a word, but like re- sort of some sort of regionalist uh, mechanisms for for moving forward. Is that the way forward? It's one way forward. I mean, you know, I, it depends on what the straw that breaks the camel's back of the regime is. If you give mm-hmm. the assumption, which is my assumption, and I've talked about this a lot, that the regime is fragile, it, what will push it over the edge? I mean, you know, the aliens, the tentacled aliens coming and eating half of America, well, that would, probably, that would probably overthrow the regime, but it really wouldn't be to our benefit now, would it? Right. <laughs> I mean, there's lots of external shocks as well as internal shocks that, that could that could do that. One is the kind of secessionist type, you know, Abbott type secessionist slash federalizing tendency with flashpoints over specific policy matters. And the most obvious possibility is the, the migrant invasion that Texas is making still relatively minor efforts to stop. But yeah, it's just hard to say because mm-hmm. uh, it's what was that Harold Macmillan uh, when someone, the prime minister of England in the sixties, when some, some young reporter criticized him for, for saying something was going to happen and it didn't and asked him what happened. And it, I think he said events, dear boy. Event. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so we're just waiting for the events. Right. Yes. I'm curious. What do you think? You know, Paul, Paul Gottfried says that, um, the woke is going to, uh, you know, the woke left will eat itself. 
and the elites will realize that importing 100 million uh, you know, immigrants are eventually going to come after the elites. And so do you think that they have sort of a sense of self-preservation that might prevent this from going all the way? No, I think uh, I think the left does eat itself, but I think that necessarily means that there is no elite right now that is going to realize that and change their mind. You would have to have a a new elite come mm-hmm. in, which would then absorb large sections of the old elite who would then change their minds. That is yeah. not going to self-generate from within the current elite that we need to do things differently, but much of the current elite will happily follow a new set of people who are kind of the core of a new elite, and they can still be part of the new elite, just like they were part of the old elite. They'll just have espouse totally different principles and, and values. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, there's a there's a debate between Paul Gottfried and Sam Francis about whether the elite believe their own myths. And Sam Francis said, you know, they do believe their own myths. Or no, Sam Francis said they're just too, they're so Machiavellian that they they um. They, they have these myths to legitimize their own power. Paul thinks that they're drinking their own Kool-Aid. <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> and they totally, actually are true. I totally agree with Paul. I mean, I think this, this Yarvin was the one in the modern kind of right-wing movement who pushes this Machiavellian idea and reintroduced it. And he brought up, uh, was it uh, Burnham's book, The Machiavellians and so on. This, it, it, while there's some truth to that, it's simply false as an empirical historical matter that elites don't drink, don't drink their own Kool-Aid. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, yeah, that's one of the interesting things. And if they, if they drink their own Kool-Aid, then there's nothing to stop them from just continuing on until something actually does stop it until there's actually some sort of power base that does confront where they're going with it, because maybe they don't have the the vision to see where it's all going. um, And maybe they don't care. Maybe they're, they're not long enough thinkers. Maybe they think on too short a time horizon just because of the way American economy and politics is structured. I think that's right. But it, at some point, and probably soon, they're just going to change the flavor of Kool-Aid. And, you know, <laughs> some set of people will be unable to do that. Yeah. So that, that'll be unfortunate for them. They will not be part of the new elite. They will have all their assets stripped and they'll be kicked out of the country. Uh, but, you know, that's a relatively small group of people. Yeah. So in the last 10 minutes, I want to talk about um, the concept of accelerationism. Um, you've used that word. It's been around for a while. But what does it mean to you and what are its benefits or dangers, maybe? Yeah, I mean, it's this is the short form version of the famous Thomas Paine quote, which Mm -hmm. is something to the effect of, if there must be trouble, let it be in my day so that my child may have peace. And this reflection, well applied, is sufficient to call every man to duty. So we might, if, if given that things are going downhill and need to be reset, they should be reset sooner rather than later, if at all possible. And that's all, I mean, accelerationism, that, that's all the accelerationism is. That is, there's no reworking, redeeming of the current political system in the United States. You know, yeah. The constitution is not coming back to, to save us all. It, to the extent there's a few tenuous threads still remaining, it's only because we have a bunch of old people in the upper levels of the federal judiciary. If we didn't have those people, we, you know, we would, I mean, we're already, in terms of rule of law and political prisoners and so on, in a considerably less free and worse state than late Eastern, late communist Eastern Europe. And so you know, we're not going back to my constitution. So given that, we, we just need to push through to whatever the next thing is. Yeah, there's there's an interesting piece of analysis from um, the libertarian theorist, uh, Murray Rothbard, mm-hmm. you know. So he, he, one of the things he blamed Reagan for 
was reinstilling, reinvigorating America's trusts in the institutions. Because after Nixon, nobody trusted what was going on at the federal level anymore. And he said one of the problems with Reagan is he made everyone believers again and basically reset our whole, you know, process of distrust and delegitimization back 20 years. Curious what I, you think yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah I, I, there's something to that. I mean, I I wasn't around with Nixon. And of course, the the Nixon. Well, I was, but I was extremely young. The uh, the it, it's hard to tell how delegitimized American institutions were, though. That is, yeah, that we there's all this talk about Watergate and so on, but much of that was a psychological op perpetrated by the deep state on the rest of America. Sure. It's not, so it's not clear to me. For I don't think that the other traditional American institutions, the church, the IBM, General Motors, the military, there was not a lack of trust in those things in the 70s or the 80s. Maybe the military with Vietnam and so on. There's it's hard for me to say. I think the the not just the degree, but the kind of lack of trust now is totally mm. different than it was in the 70s. It's not at all clear to me that that if Reagan hadn't come along, that the 70s would have continued to what we have today because it's just a difference of kind. Yeah, it's um, it is fascinating because like the one institution that America like conservatives um, just couldn't find it in their heart to you know talk bad about would be the military. But now a lot of conservatives are not comfortable with their kids being enlisted at all. They're sure they don't. So that's an important thing because that's that's one of those hurdles that was always really difficult. We have to put faith in the FBI. It's protecting us from you know, <laughs> you know what I mean. But seriously, conservatives are leading the charge in their frustrations against, you know, the military apparatus. Yeah. Uh, and, and Well, and the FBI is also a good example. I mean, when I was in college in the late 80s, the FBI was a trust institution. I trusted the FBI. I mean, now there should be drumhead tribunals for extensive, you know, uh, greater than 50% of the FBI, people who work for the FBI, drumhead mm -hmm. tribunals followed by long prison terms for many of them. Um, I mean, it's just a totally corrupt and evil organization that the only solution for is total destruction and banning, along with punishments, total banning of anyone who's ever worked in the FBI from working in any position of trust before, even if the person didn't specifically commit evils by refusing to disassociate himself from an evil organization, he's therefore corrupt. It's like denazification. Anybody who worked for the FBI should be you know, completely exiled from polite society forever. Mm -hmm. That's a complete reversal. If, I mean, a more complete reversal is impossible to imagine relative to what I used to think. Well, yeah, and a lot of conservatives agree with you. But when Ron Paul said we should defund the FBI in 2012, the conservatives went crazy against him. And now here we are 10 years later <laughs> and we're having this conversation. No, but seriously, like that's fast. That's well, a really fast shift. Meme. I think the meme is something like the arc of history is long, but it bends toward Ron Paul being yeah. and everything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. So, I mean, that's that's pretty quick. I mean, that yeah, talk about accelerationism. I, I never would have thought that conservative, like younger conservatives would have, you know, um, been adopting that view in such an intense way, in such a necessary way. I'm not critiquing it, obviously. Um, but, you know, the, the, the Republican Party is completely um, they have no idea what's happening with their base. And uh, or maybe they do and they're panicking about it. Um, so it's like, a maybe... great question. I'd, I'd be like, I'd, it'd, be, it'd be useful to be a fly on the wall. In yeah. Internal McConnell type discussions. I think mostly it's just like senile drooling rather than high level policy discussions and analysis. But what do I know? Yeah. Yeah. So let, let's, let's sort of like end with, with that, with that type of topic in mind. Um, senile. What's that? 
Penile drooling. <laughs> yes. Let's end with that. Do you think the Republican Party has to be demolished in order for us to continue our momentum? Or is the Republican Party a vehicle for us? Well, certainly, if the American if the Republican Party is a vehicle for us, it would be a totally different Republican Party where literally 99% of the people who have any power within the Republican Party are no longer allowed to have any power within the party. So therefore, it's a continuation only in name. It's like the Senate under Augustus. Like there's still a Senate, but it has no relevance to its uh, to its former role. So the or the, the complete destruction. I think I would, I think just from a viewpoint perspective, total destruction of the Republican Party and its end as a as a party to be replaced by something else is much better because it, 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 it's an object lesson to people and what happens to those who ignore the actual wishes of their constituents. But I, I would take either. Neither, of course, is immediately apparent. But uh, you know, I think my guess is, to your earlier point about things going quickly, you know, February 2025 is going to present a very different picture with respect to the Republican Party than today does. Yeah, it was really obvious when DeSantis was running that he was uh... – he was really beholden to the, uh, you know, the, the consultancy class, and so I, I wonder, I wonder if you think, um, just it, it just shows just how ir irrelevant they are now. Well, they're not irrelevant because they have enormous money, and they, I mean, in fact, the DeSantis showed that they are more relevant than ever in, in a weird and unpleasant sense. I mean, I was pretty bullish on DeSantis, and then like day two. He comes out and reverses his position and says, "You know, we need to like send infinite money to Ukraine." You know, you know I mean, it's it just I, it was just obvious that they 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 had control of him, mm -hmm. and, and so until that control is broken, then it, the Republican Party can't be remade. And yeah. so there's two ways of doing that. There's those people who have all the money who are contro controlling things start putting their money someplace totally else, or those people's money is no longer necessary for one reason or another. Yeah. Okay. Last question. If, if you had to name one political theorist, philosopher, or whatever that you would recommend to people that they, that they um, digest, who would it be? Oh, you know, the answer to this, because this is the same answer for both of us. Of course, it would be Carl Schmidt. All right. There you go. That's the right answer. That's the right answer. The only answer. You're welcome to have a, a third run with us then. So um, <laughs> I passed the test. Yay. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Charles, for your time. What I'm going to do is I'm going to play this outro that I didn't set up, but it's going to be consistent this time. So thank you, everybody, for listening. I'll have this up in uh, you know podcast form shortly. And uh, go look for Charles's Twitter. And is it thewordofthehouse.com? Thewordofthehouse.com is my the site. house. Yeah, great essays, great book reviews, and uh, great thoughts from uh, Charles Haywood. Thank you.